Edge of Sports is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Edge35 when you subscribe. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This is our Super Bowl show this week, and so I am talking to Atlanta's own Sekou Smith from NBA.com so we could talk about the Super Bowl that was and the only sport that matters now, the NBA, and why NBA players, unlike NFL, NHL, or Major League Baseball players, have been speaking out in unprecedented numbers against the agenda of Donald Trump. Also, I've got some choice words about the political energy thrumming underneath the Super Bowl and a Just Stand Up award for my favorite New England Patriot. Yes, I have one. But first, let's talk to the man himself from Atlanta, Sekou Smith. First and foremost, when I think of people I know in the word Atlanta, (laughs) you're the first person that comes to mind, uh, other than, of course, you know, Jimmy Carter. And so I wanted to ask you just... Straight up, man. Super Bowl reaction. How you doing? How you feeling? <laughs> I'm actually great. Even being a longtime resident of this city, I've adopted the understanding that, you know, the sky usually is falling during an Atlanta sporting event when, you know, it looks like the sky is falling. So my heart went out to all my, my Falcons fan friends during the game last night because I'm a Michigan guy. I grew up watching Tom Brady Leave Michigan to come oh, back man. when he was in college. So I, I kind of had a feeling what was coming. And I'm prone to yell out the words, touchdown, Tommy, when he throws touchdowns. So my wife was trying to kick me out of the house last night. Um, she was not at all pleased with it. She even blasted me on Facebook, um, uh, <laughs> which is kind of weird. You know, you, you're downstairs yelling at the TV and your wife is upstairs telling everybody on Facebook how sick sick of hearing you say touchdown, Tommy, all over the house. So it was, it was an interesting night and a, and a very – gloomy morning like this morning i could not believe the sky was nasty and gray you know people walking around like they were headed for a funeral man it's unbelievable just how down everybody is in the city right now now does that surprise you at all because do you think of atlanta as that kind of a sports town particularly for the nfl i think the perception of atlanta outside of here is much different than what it is internally when i moved here they were in the height of the michael vick craze so the Falcons have always had an extremely passionate fan base here, even more so than, you know, the Braves or any other sport or, or team here in town. And um, it's the NFL, of course, so it has a built-in fan base anyway, just, the, you know, the game itself. But there was – when I tell you Michael Vick was electric when I, when I first got to Atlanta in, uh, in January 2005, there was not a more – kinetic environment than a Falcons game or a strip club or a bowling alley or a club, whatever, where Michael Vick was expected to be or, you know, or might stumble into by accident. It was always this feeling that, you know, this was Michael Vick city and he was the most electric guy in sports. And that was something that Atlanta could take ownership of. So it's, it's been like that and it hasn't changed even even in with the dogfight and stuff and the aftermath of that the the passion for the falcons didn't wane i think the you know it, it got twisted and turned sideways a few times but it never it never you know waned it never went away i'm sorry i love that you said 
Anywhere Michael Vick might show up, strip club, bowling alley. I was like, was that a Michael Vick weekend? Strip club, bowling alley? Grocery store, pet Grocery. store. I mean, you know. Don't say pet store. It could be anywhere. <laughs> oh, man, you are bad. <laughs> it's so funny that, that you just, I was going to ask you what your Super Bowl night was like, and you just described it, you cheering downstairs, your wife uh, posting to Facebook about you being a Tom Brady sleeper cell upstairs. Um, <laughs> but I, I did want to ask you, you know, Donald Trump, as you probably heard, turned off the TV when the Pats went down 28 to three. Did you consider at any point giving up on the game? Um, yeah, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be 100% honest here. So, I started out at a buddy's house who's a big Falcons fan. I did the first half at his house. I was so upset at how Brady and the Patriots were playing by halftime that I said, I'm leaving. So I got a to-go plate, put some foil over it, and drove home. Um, I walked up through my garage, up into my kitchen. My wife and kids were in in here screaming about the Falcons, like, go Falcons, you know, all that. Um, Slowly, they kind of matriculated away from me because they they sensed how pissed I was that Tom Brady was not you know winning the game as I predicted because I'm always I always pick Tom Brady no matter what I don't care who he votes for I don't care he's a Republican he's a Michigan man first and and that's what's most important so by the what what is it about Michigan people there's nothing like the (laughs) Michigan mafia I swear to you like like I, I gotta tell you I live in a community right outside of DC that's the most like you know, hug a tree, don't worry about sports. And Michigan plays Ohio State, and people have flags outside their house. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's something that you're born with, you know, and it carries on from generation to generation. My niece is, is a professor at Michigan. She just finished her undergrad, and she's doing grad school and teaching the class. And I got pictures of her with me at Michigan Stadium when she was like five years old, and she didn't even remember. She's like, this must have been destined to be. And I'm like, yeah, you've been groomed for this. Since you were a little girl, you don't even remember it. But mm. there's something about the maize and blue, man, that gets in your blood. And once it's in there, it's hard to shake it. Um, but, you know, when, like I said, when I came home, my family knows, my wife and kids know that I root for the Michigan players, whoever they might be on a team, or I root for the University of Michigan, period. So they kind of scattered when I came home. And as the comeback started going, I'm telling you, Dave, you could hear – the wind swirling outside my house. It, it was real. This, the whole city of Atlanta up until halftime was preparing for a parade on Tuesday. Like they were ready to finally exercise that demon. And Tom Brady, <laughs> Tom Brady pulled the demon back out of the bag. And it's, I don't know if this city will recover. I'm serious. I don't know how people will, will get over this. I was listening to some, some radio as I was driving around town this morning. And I mean, there were people literally cry, calling in and crying about the game last night. It was stunning. Wow. I'm glad you said that because I was calling you to get the Atlanta point of view and what happening. And for a second, I thought I was talking to Bo Schembechler. (laughs) (laughs) I was was like, this was not the vibe I expected. (laughs) But it makes sense, though. I'm a a, a, a conscientious observer of what goes on in Atlanta here, of Atlanta sports. You know, um, one of my best friends, Lang Whitaker, um, yep. who I do my podcast with is born and raised in Atlanta, but lives in New York now and has for the past 15 years. And people who have grown up here and suffered through all the ills of Atlanta sports, they're kindred spirits. You know, mm. it doesn't matter if they grew up in the projects or if they grew up in the suburbs, they have 
that one thing that links them all together, and that's having their hearts broken by their sports teams. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I Also, I kept thinking, to take it back to Michigan, of an interview I heard with Charles Woodson, who said, you know, that, yeah, I, I was studying Atlanta secondary and their skill position players, and they're faster, younger, stronger than the Patriots, but I can't bet against Tom Brady. Yep. And not only that, but the Patriots actually covered the the Vegas line too, despite all of that. So yes. it's, it's unbelievable to me. And I'm, yeah. I'm just shaking my head at the whole thing. Well, let's talk about a real sport, and that's basketball. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Basketball. A real sport. I just saw your um, MVP rankings posted mm-hmm. at the Hangtime blog. Very nicely done, as always. And the question that I keep thinking as I'm looking at it is you have John Wall at number eight right now. He should be higher. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm kicking myself. Thank you. That's all I wanted to hear you say. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's weird because it's not just a, what have you done for me lately poll. It's really kind of a season long thing. And Wall broke into it, you know, a few weeks back and he really should be climbing, but it's, it's, it's so tough to move up or down. You got, here's the dilemma. You got two guys in Russell, Westbrook and, and James Harden, who are playing out of their minds this season. Then you got two guys in Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, who have won the last three MVPs and are on the best team in the league by far, you know, from a records perspective and just from the eyeball test. You got that complainer up in Cleveland, <laughs> who no matter how much he complains, is still arguably anybody's best player on the planet. And then you got the quietest guy in the league who might be the best all-around player right now, and I'm not kidding when I say that, in Kawhi Leonard. So it's, and, oh, yeah, the, the best fourth-quarter score in basketball has got Boston in the top three in the Eastern Conference. I mean, it's, there's so many guys that are fighting for space this season. I think this is one of the, the deepest seasons I can remember in terms of guys who could lay legitimate claim to being the most valuable player in the league. And Wall just, I mean, he's he's – got a sledgehammer in his hand he's trying to crack the wall down and he belongs in that top five or six and it'll I'm, i think it'll happen here in the next couple of weeks if he keeps playing the way he is you know I, I look at john wall and i look at stray things in the corner of my eye like eric bledsoe scoring over 40 points three times in five games or something like that and i'm forced to ask the question have we ever had a better crop of nba players than we do in 2017 i think you could maybe look back at a at the 80s Late 80s, early, you know, when Magic and Bird were still viable superstars, Isaiah Thomas, those guys, and Jordan was coming up and into his own. That might have been the closest we've seen to this many quality star players. I think we have right now the greatest compilation of backcourt players the NBA has ever seen. Mm. You know, because back then you had a mix of big men and perimeter players and backcourt players who were all, you know, you could go from Charles Barkley to, to Ewing and David Robinson. I mean, there was just this army of, of great players to me during the, the 80s and early 90s. And right now, though, I mean, the point guard position is like 20 guys deep. Right. You know, where you can find legitimate star players. I mean, there are guys like Mike Conley, and you mentioned Eric Bledsoe, another guy who's who was on that same trajectory as, as you know, as Russ and some of these other young superstar guards before he got injured, you got all these guys in the league and basically all in the same age range, you know, and not making all-star teams, right. From 22 to 27 and, 
and they're going to have to watch somebody else go to the All-Star game every year in their place because the competition is that thick. The mm. thing we don't have right now is just we don't have a litany of great big men like we had in generations past. They're not, to me, 10 to 12 elite-level talent big men floating around the league right now. They're, you know, If we had more guys in that realm, I think we would. you could argue that this is about as talented as the league has ever been. You know, another thing that's defined this NBA season – uh, has been just the sheer tonnage of players, whether on social media, coaches as well, uh, who've spoken out against some of Donald Trump's policies. And it's been very intense. I don't know if you've seen some of the rolling lists. It's almost like you can't keep up with players who are speaking out about this. And you cannot say that about the NFL. You cannot say that about Major League Baseball or hockey. I got to ask you, what is it? about the NBA in 2017? Because you also, you could not say this about the NBA, say, during the Iraq War or during the 90s. There's something about 2017 that the NBA is creating this distinct space for itself. Why do you think that is? I think it started with the Trayvon Martin um, situation in the the Miami Heat. And I'm sure you remember the picture they took. Sure. Team picture with hoodies. To me, that was kind of the touchstone for today's NBA players. Like, that was something that hit home with a lot of those guys. A, because they were either young enough to picture themselves in Trayvon Martin's shoes, or they were fathers and could picture their children in Trayvon Martin's shoes. And it hit home with them in a way that I don't think anything else has happened socially has during their life, you know, their lifetime, certainly not during their lifetime as NBA players, NBA stars, and, and people who live on that stage. The other thing that I don't think you could ever underestimate how powerful it is, is social media. You know, mm. they're the first social media age of athletes, of professional athletes. They're the guys who have grown up with it as a part of their daily routine, and they feel not only the freedom to express themselves there, but I think they feel compelled to express themselves there because their peers are doing it. You know, their friends and acquaintances who aren't professional athletes live in that space. They live in the Instagram space or the Twitter sphere, you know. So I don't think they have any apprehension whatsoever about expressing themselves there because that's what everybody that they know and everybody in their community does. I mean, it's just a part of their routine. They wake up, look, my 14-year-old wakes up looking at his Instagram as if he's important enough <laughs> to look at his Instagram in the morning, you know, before he brushes his teeth. And I, I I think it's hilarious and it makes it frustrates the hell out of me. But I understand that it's a part of what people his age do. It's, it's their routine. But you take that leap from something like Trayvon Martin to the Muslim travel ban and Kyle Lowry saying, you know, this is bullshit. I mean, and other players speaking out against the travel ban. Is this just a case of courage being contagious and being against all instances of perceived injustice? Is this because the NBA is a global league? I think it's because they live a global lifestyle now. The world has shrunk for them in ways that, you know, I don't know that people comprehend. Kyle Lowry is an, a citizen of the world. I mean, he, he lives and works for the majority of his year. In another country. I know it's not like it's the other side of the world, but Canada is another country. So, I mean, 
for a guy like Kyle Lowry in particular, the the multicultural environment that he lives in on a daily basis in Toronto, right, forces him to consider these things. I don't think it's any coincidence that as the world has shrunk via social media, the voices have gotten louder about issues that affect people all over the place. You know, as the league, the NBA in particular, has gotten more international, you've seen a a stronger sense of pride for guys from other parts of the world. I, I think people don't know, like Zaza Pachulia, when there was the turmoil going on between the you know the Republic of Georgia and and Russia you know Zaza was not quiet about it he was outspoken about it maybe nobody was listening mm. but those of us who know him and you know are connected to him via social media and and other things you knew that he had something to say about it and that it was affecting him even when you know when he's playing and and working and living with his family wife and kids on the other side of the world what was going on back in his homeland was affecting him. And and I actually applaud it. I think it's something that separates today's athletes from the, you know, the pro athletes and the superstar athletes of previous generations and that they didn't have the freedom to express themselves like that. They were not encouraged to wear these things, you know, publicly the way athletes are these days, the, you know, whether somebody likes it or agrees with you or not, they respect the fact that you have an opinion about it. And, and there was a time when we didn't, as a public, consider our athletes to be anything other than performers. And I think we do now. How much does it matter, if at all, the transition from David Stern to Adam Silver in terms of players feeling like I have space to speak out? I think it matters tremendously. I think it's it's a significant change in terms of the league's acceptance of the player's right to speak their mind and to, you know, express themselves in ways that go beyond, you know, the name on the front of the Jersey, you know, beyond the brand that is the NBA beyond the shoe. And, and Adam Silver has made a point of expressing that to the players. I've talked to many guys who connect with Adam Silver in ways that they didn't with David Stern, but it's a generational thing. Adam Silver is a, he's from a different generation than his predecessor. So I, I wouldn't expect him to come in with some of the same ideas and attitudes that David Stern held. And that's not to say one's right or wrong. It's just the evolution of the league and the leadership of the league and of the population of the NBA. There, Believe me, there are plenty of old school souls who are coaching now or executives in this league. It's a shock to their system that the players express themselves the way that they do now. And that's just a generational thing. That's just about going from 1984, you know, to 2004 to whatever comes next. Now, and I, I really appreciate your time. I have to ask you one last question, though, because, and you feel free to tell me if I'm out of my mind, but do you see, and I think I see it, but I think you're gonna, you might not agree with me, and that's okay, <laughs> connective tissue between players speaking out LeBron James being one of those players who has spoken out and LeBron James's willingness to clap back at Charles Barkley with chapter and verse to say, no, I'm not going to be bullied by you, Charles. Here's your resume. How dare you step to me? I think there were a lot of guys who stood and applauded when LeBron did that, because I think a lot of them have felt the weight of 
past players always being critical of them um, in ways that they don't appreciate. You know, and look, I work with retired players, you know, retired Hall of Famers, guys who were stars of a different era. I work with those guys all the time. And some of them are uber critical of today's players. But a lot of them, Dave, I got to tell you, are very much in tune to what LeBron had to say and what Dwayne Wade had to say and supporter LeBron and other guys, Draymond. They're sensitive to the fact that I was in that guy's shoes at one point and there was somebody out there passing judgment on me and I didn't like it either, but I didn't have the forum to respond in the way that LeBron does. You know, there wasn't the access to express yourself in the same way you got and i had this conversation with isaiah thomas and sam mitchell last week while we were on the desk at nba tv they felt a certain animosity from the the guys who were covering them when they played you know i think they feel like lebron has a much more uh, inviting platform to express himself in the way he did about charles than they ever did when they were playing because the reporters you know, and the, the journalists covering the league back then would have held similar views to what Charles does. Whereas now a guy like Dave McMiniman, he's much more in line in terms of his mentality and his thinking about things, about the game, about whatever. His his thoughts would be much more in line with LeBron's than they would be with Charles's. And that's mm. just, again, it's about generations. My dad is, is in his 70s and we talk on a daily basis and bounce things off of each other. Things that he doesn't understand about today's generation, uh, you know, people my age, and things that I have to, you know, get with him about to reflect on what might have been the norm during his day and age when he was my age. So if you don't have a way of bridging that generational gap, I think you run into some of the conflicts we see with Chuck and LeBron and, and the differences in opinion between guys who have come up during one era compared to another. But one thing I know, know and understand about young people in this day and age, they're not going to be chained to any line of thinking that they don't come up with themselves. You know, they're not going to follow blindly because somebody tells them this is the way we do things without coming up with their own way of doing it. And, and to me, that's a good thing. I, I think that's something that you have to appreciate. If you're in this world, you know, in the sports world, anything else is that there's an evolution that goes on, you know, for the next generation that you either get on that train and ride with them and try and understand it or you try and stand in the way of it and runs you over. Mm. Yeah, I I think Charles just got an elbow to the chest (laughs) on that front. (laughs) Yeah, he got he got clapped back pretty, pretty dramatically. And um, yeah. I applaud LeBron for sticking up for himself, even if some people don't agree with him dragging up Charles's litany of transgressions against the world from back in the day. I thought it spoke to LeBron's understanding of his place in the game and the fact that he carries a burden as the face of the, you know, the NBA and, and as the f- arguably the most popular face of his generation, you know, in the sporting world and perhaps beyond in ways that Charles never did when he was LeBron's age. And when he was in that public space, I mean, Charles never carried the burden that LeBron has from the time he's 16 until now. Never, never did. You think I could get away with if the next time my wife's like Dave, take out the garbage. If I say, Hey, I never threw anybody through a plate glass window. 
I never spit on a kid. Why do I have to take out the garbage? I mean, could I, could I use that too? You think you could use it, but you probably wouldn't. Uh, you probably wouldn't be sleeping in the places you like to sleep or eating the things you like to eat at home. No, that's uh, true. That would you know, be bad. I, I'll save that. For I know Charles. my limits. Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to know if it was limits. an all-purpose response or just for Charles Barkley. Okay, I, know, yeah, I think it's just for Chuck. <laughs> hey, Sekou Smith, thank you so much for the time. Please be kind to the good people of Atlanta this week. <laughs> I'm going to do my best, Dave. I really am. Thank you, sir. Thanks, man. Be well. All right, sir. Appreciate you. That was Sekou Smith, ladies and gents. You can follow him on Twitter at Sekou Smith NBA. That's S-E-K-O-U Smith NBA. And now a quick word about our sponsor this week, HelloFresh. If you're like me, you don't know how to cook, but you like food. And that can be really tough sometimes because if you're just ordering in all the time, it's not healthy. If you're just eating frozen food that's been processed within an inch of its life, it's not healthy. And if you're just waiting for your partner or loved one to cook for you, that's going to get mighty old mighty fast. Maybe not for you, but for the person you're with. All you got to do is go to HelloFresh.com and if you put in the code Edge 35, you get $35 off your first week of deliveries. It is easy, it is delicious, and even I didn't screw it up. My whole family loved it. They were like, Daddy, I didn't know you could cook. And I was like, I can't. Wink! Because it was so awesome. But I didn't really say that. I just said, yeah, you better believe I can cook. Now eat your food. I was the hero of the house, and I'm going to continue to be the hero as long as I order from HelloFresh. Once again, for $35 off your first week of deliveries, just visit HelloFresh.com, enter the promo code EDGE35 when you subscribe. And now I've got some choice words about the political vibe thrumming underneath the Super Bowl in Houston. Unless you are living in Ivanka Trump's bubble, you may know that the New England Patriots won Super Bowl 51 34-28 over the Atlanta Falcons in the most gobsmacking, unfathomable comeback in Super Bowl history. Down 28-3, they came all the way back to win in overtime. That will mean joy in the White House and also joy for Patriots tight end Martellus Bennett, who won't be joining the team upon their inevitable Donald Trump visit because of the man who inhabits 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And he won't be the only one. But there was something else thrumming beneath the surface of this game, something far more meaningful than which billionaire ended up hoisting the Lombardi Trophy. It was something in the anthems, something in the commercials, something in the way people were watching the action. It started with the Schuyler sisters from the musical Hamilton, Philippa Sue, Renee Elise Goldsberry, and Jasmine Cephas Jones, singing America the Beautiful and adding the word sisterhood to the lyrics. America, America, God shed his grace on shed his grace and crown thy good. With brotherhood, sisterhood, from sea to shining sea, from sea to shining sea, to shining sea. 
pity Luke Bryan, who had to follow the Schuyler sisters with the national anthem and was promptly forgotten. But back to the Schuyler sisters. Given the women's marches that exploded after the Trump inauguration, given that Vice President Mike Pence was in a VIP box, and given Pence's own history of being rebuked at the musical Hamilton last November, it was difficult to see the performance as anything but a highly choreographed shot to the solar plexus of this White House. Then Lady Gaga's halftime performance started with God Bless America, and then, as if she was taking a handoff from Sue, Goldsbury, and Jones, she transitioned to the Woody Guthrie anthem, This Land is Your Land, an anthem being sung at protests around the country these days. There are many who wanted Lady Gaga to be even more political, but when you choose a song not only organically connected to present-day protests, but one with lyrics that include... As I went walking, I saw a sign there, and on the sign it said no trespassing, but on the other side it didn't say nothing. That side was made for you and me. The significance is unmistakable. Then she sang her rousing 2011 anthem, Born This Way. Six years ago, this was a statement against bullying. It is difficult to hear it now as anything but an anthem against the biggest bully of them all. The verses Gaga chose to sing must have given Steve Bannon more heart palpitations than Falcon's receiver Mohammed Sanu, as she sang. No man of gay straight or bi, lesbian, transgender, life, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born as so by. No man of black, white, or beige, orient, made, right track, baby, I was born a big way. Now this is what happened on the field. The commercials also attempted to capture this mood, from a quote-unquote proudly feminist Audi ad to an Anheuser-Busch campaign celebrating the immigration story of the beer company's founding family, much to the chagrin of online Nazis now calling for a boycott of the brewery. There was even a hair product commercial that started with the statement, We are in for four years of bad hair. This might very well be seen as an effort to commodify dissent, but it is stunning that the suits of Madison Avenue, after years of erectile dysfunction and sexist GoDaddy.com ads, feel something in the air that they yearn to commodify. This is just what took place around the Super Bowl itself. Outside the stadium, Houston saw a week of protests, culminating in more than a thousand people on a Sunday march that stretched over half a mile. It was for black lives and against the Muslim ban and decidedly against the aims of this White House. That's what happens when the Super Bowl is staged in a city that takes in more refugees than anywhere in the United States. Remember, if Houston was a country, it would take in the fifth most number of refugees on Earth. Look, there's no doubt that people who equated a Patriots victory with a victory of sorts for Trump will feel, shall we say, deflated by the turn of events tonight. But the real world is more complicated than that. The Patriots will go home to a city that Trump would not even be able to enter without provoking mass protests. A city that just a week ago had hundreds of people clogging Logan Airport to protest the Muslim ban, and two weeks ago shut down Greater Boston with post-inauguration protests. The fight goes on, and the wind is at our back. The resistance continues, and great comebacks, no matter who leads them, should remind us that nothing is set in stone. 
And now I've got a Just Stand Up award for my favorite Patriot. That would be Mr. Martellus Bennett, tight end. Martellus Bennett, of course, is the brother of Michael Bennett, who we interviewed on the show a couple of weeks back at Seattle Town Hall. People should go back and listen to that episode, and you'll get a sense of why the Bennett brothers are so incredibly stand-up, iconoclastic, and courageous. As for Martellus Bennett, he said during the Super Bowl week that he didn't think he was going to go to the White House if the Patriots won. Now, I, for one, wondered if after the Patriots actually did win, if Martellus might step back away from that position in the name of team unity or what have you. But the opposite was the case. The champagne had not even dried on the floor of the locker room. The tears of the Atlanta Falcons faithful had not even dried on their cheeks before Martellus Bennett said, there is no way I'm going to that White House to meet with Donald Trump. He said, quote, I can elaborate later on in life. Right now, I'm just trying to enjoy this. People know how I feel about it. Just follow me on Twitter, end quote. And if you did follow Martellus Bennett on Twitter, you would see tweets like the one he sent last December 4th after Kanye West's meeting with Donald Trump, where he tweeted, so Kanye didn't take the time to vote, and now he's holding on to Trump's coattail like Peter Pettigrew to Lord Voldemort. Kanye Pettigrew, end quote. Look, you might not be a Harry Potter fan, so let me just tell you, that was some serious Hogwarts burn from Martellus Bennett to Kanye West. And that's who Martellus Bennett is. He was even asked if he was worried about Patriots owner Bob Kraft, who's a friend of Trump, and he said he's not really worried about it. And that's what it's going to take, people who aren't scared to offend their bosses to stand up to what is a rotten agenda. So thank you, Martellus Bennett, for saying you will not go to this White House. And I can guarantee to my listeners out there, Martellus Bennett will not be the only patriot to turn down that invitation. Well, that's all we have this week, everybody. Thank you so much to my producer, Dan Bloom. Thank you so much to my co-producer, David Tigaboo. We are taking a little hiatus from the show. I promise it won't be too long. If you miss us, you can always call us at 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Give us a call. Tell us the stories you want us to cover. We're going to take a break, reboot the show. I just want to thank Slate and Panoply for hosting the show for as long as they did. I'm looking forward to the new relationship that we're going to have with The Nation magazine. You can always follow me on Twitter, Dave Zirin, at Edge of Sports. If you have any questions about the show, you can always hit me up there or on Facebook on the Edge of Sports podcast page. For everybody listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.